0: Good morning, how has your week been, good, yes, no, everything in between, yeah, that's so great that we can come together and um, just be community. So how was your week? Of course, the typical answer is great, fine, wonderful. Wonderful. And uh, those that we know well, and who we have a trust relationship with, we can tell them more, and and just enjoy uh, the beauty of being uh, real and vulnerable. And sometimes, just things are great. Life is great, and it really is. So, we are going through this journey in what's called the Gospel of Luke, good news story attributed to a guy named Luke, who um, likely was a physician, well educated told us the story about Jesus. And we've been walking through chapter by chapter, and we're now in chapter 18. So that's where we're going to camp out for today. Before we do, I want to tell you about a guy that maybe you have never heard of before. His name is Wilbur Earl Tennant. Wilbur Earl Tennant. There's a picture of him. It's the only picture I could find, and I know it's not a great picture. But Wilbur was a farmer from Virginia who uh, owned a few hundred acres and had a few hundred cows, and a landfill site went in beside his farm. And everything was fine, but over the years he started to notice uh, the stream that ran through his farm. Changed in its characteristics. There started to be an oily film often on top of the water where the water swirls around and goes over the rocks, and you get the little eddies. There were like those bubbles that um, start to form, you know, like in hot tubs that haven't been cleaned properly at a hotel. And you get those big, by the way, if you ever go to a hotel and there's a hot tub with a bunch of bubbles all there, don't go in it, okay? Just but he noticed these bubbles forming in the stream. And then he noticed as he fed his cows, he was great at feeding his cows, but they started to get thinner and thinner and thinner, even though he was feeding them well. And then they started dying. One, and then another one, and then another one. They had black teeth. He talked to the people from the Ministry of Agriculture in his area. Nobody seemed to really be interested in helping him. But he wasn't going to give up. So he started to do his own autopsies on the cows, and he would cut them open, and he would take their organs out and freeze them, put them in the family freezer. It used to be filled with um, beef and the game that he shot on their land, but he had noticed that the game also started to have the same characteristics as the cows. And their teeth got black, their behavior started to become more aggressive, And he kept petitioning different companies and different people and different organizations and nobody seemed willing to help until one day, through um, a family connection, he went to see a lawyer by the name of Robert Billet. Robert Billet was a lawyer who represented the big chemical companies. And Wilbur Tennant, knew that the landfill site that was beside his farm had begun, started by the DuPont Chemical Company. And he was sure that it was the landfill that was contaminating the water, which was killing his cows, killing the game, and ruining his farm. But nobody would listen. And he got to Robert Billet. And he gave Robert Billet one of his videos that he made of his cows, of doing the autopsy, of looking at the dead cows, of looking at the stream. And he continued to bug Robert Billet until eventually Robert Billet went, okay. And he listened to him, he met with him, he watched the videos, and then Robert Billet had something profound happen. He went, oh, maybe there's something here. And then Robert Billet... Who was representing the chemical companies flipped sides and then began to prosecute the chemical companies. Wilbur Tennant um, finally got Robert Billet in 1998 to bring a, a case against the DuPont Chemical Company, and it finally was settled in 2017. million awarded to about 3,500, I think it was 3,500 people in a class action lawsuit. And I don't know how all that played out. But to this day, he is still bringing new lawsuits against these chemical companies because the chemicals that were in that water were called uh, PFAs, polyfloral alkyl substances, something like that. I don't know what they are. All I know is... They're in just about everything, and 99% of North Americas have traces of these chemicals in their bodies. Now, you might be familiar with this because you watched a movie recently called Dark Waters. So, if you haven't, interesting movie, tells a story. But I think in the movie, Robert Billet is portrayed as the hero. But in some ways, I think Wilbur Tennant is the one who started it all, who would not give up. And you can see the quote on there uh, in the wall behind me. I'm going to bring it out in the open for people to see. And he wouldn't give up. And I think Wilbur Tennant is a wonderful modern example of a story that Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 18. And I want to read that story for you now. So remember in Luke 17, Jesus was asked, we covered this last week, when will the kingdom of God come? And he kind of said, eh, Wrong question. Where is it going to happen? Wrong question. How can we participate with you in the kingdom? Good question. And then Luke writes this in verse 1 of chapter 18. One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said. He neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. And the judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she's wearing me out with her constant requests. And then the Lord said this, learn a lesson from the unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think that God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on earth who have faith? It's a great story, and we read the story, and Luke tells us, he kind of, either he's interpreting it for us, or he's telling us what he's been told, is that Jesus told them a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. And sometimes, I think, we read a story like this, and we automatically go into this interpretation mode of, oh, we have to try harder, we have to pray more. We have to work more because when we try harder and we keep trying and we keep trying, and we keep trying, eventually we'll wear God out and God will give us what we want. And, and if we're not careful, I think we read this story and we think, oh, that's how I'm supposed to understand the story. But if you think what we've been doing as we've read through Luke's gospel, one of the beautiful things that Jesus does for us among many things is Jesus corrects our image of God. We all have an image of who God is. And there are parts of that image that are really accurate. And there are parts of the image of God that you and I have that need to be corrected. And one of the beautiful things about following Jesus and staying close to Jesus is that he is always bringing us into greater awareness of who God is. And I think this story is one of those examples. He's wanting people to understand who God is and how God functions. If you remember last week in chapter 17, verse 22, when Jesus was asked when the kingdom would come, he said to his disciples, the days are coming where you are going to long for the Son of Man to be here. And in essence, he's saying to them, hold on, don't give up. You're in the in-between times of the now and the not yet. The The days of the Son of Man are here, but the day of the Son of Man, that final day, is still yet to happen. So hold on. Continue to live that kind of life that I've invited you into, which is dying to self and receiving new life in Jesus on a daily basis. And if we go back to chapter 16, you know the story of Lazarus and the rich man, or we go back to chapter 15, some of you are familiar with this. Jesus tells three stories of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. One sheep is lost, the shepherd leaves 99 to find the one. One coin is lost, the woman spends all day sweeping frantically till she finds that one coin. The son is lost, comes to his senses and comes home, and dad throws a party for him. And it's interesting when you when you look at these stories from the perspective of how to understand who God is. That sheep didn't have to sit there crying and crying until it got the shepherd's attention so the shepherd would eventually go like, "Oh, I better go get the sheep." The shepherd as soon as he saw the sheep was gone, he's off. He's after the sheep. Because the sheep has intrinsic value to the shepherd. The coin, when the coin is lost, it doesn't have to do anything. I know it's an inanimate object. I get that. The coin doesn't have to do anything like roll around the floor or flash and get shiny or anything for the woman to start looking for it. As soon as she realizes the coin is gone, she is looking for the coin because the coin has intrinsic value. The sun, and this gets better, the sun in that story... He takes off. He's as good as dead to his family. And he says to his dad, you're as good as dead to me. Give me my inheritance money now. And he blows it, and he ruins his life. And in the very pit of despair, he comes to his senses and says, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to at least ask if my dad would let me work on the farm. And that's his image of who his dad is. And when he gets back there, he can't even get the words out of his mouth to say, please let me just be a hired hand. And dad's running down the road, throwing his arms around him and throwing a big party. And the party is all about the fact that the son was dead and now can live a new life. Jesus is always correcting our image Of who God is, and I think He's doing it again in this story here today. So we've got to ask the question is this a story about prayer? Or is this a story about God? Because, in one way, you can read this story and go, we need to try harder. We need to be like the widow. And if something's not happening, it's because we're not praying enough, we're not trying hard enough. We need to be more like Wilbur Tennant. So let's just walk through the story a little bit. Jesus says, hey, there's this judge. And the judge says to himself, I don't fear God. And I could care less about people. In Jesus' day and age, that is what constituted a person who was wicked. So this is a wicked judge, I don't care about God, and I don't care about you. And yet, interestingly, even though he doesn't care about people, he says, ah, I got to pay attention to this lady because she's wearing me out. Um, Different translations will say different things about this. So you've got this wicked judge in this story, And then you've got this tenacious widow. Or sometimes she's referred to as the persistent widow. And so when we talk about the persistent widow, and I've heard this in churches, and I've I've even acted this my own way, we need to be like the persistent widow. We need to pray more. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray more. But I'm asking the question, is this story Jesus told us about the fact that we should be praying more, or is it a story about how we understand God? So when he says, this widow's going to wear me out, there's a couple ways you could, you could, again, we come back to translation issues. So there's a figurative sense of translating the word, she's going to wear me out, and there's a literal sense of translating that word. So there's two ways to understand that word, which becomes a phrase in English, One word in the Greek language becomes a phrase in English. This woman's going to wear me out. Figuratively, she's going to wear me out. Another way of translating that word is she's going to finally expose me. She's finally going to wear me out, or she's finally going to expose what I'm like. And so I think translators like to prefer the figurative interpretation of this. But I think the literal interpretation of this word gives the story just a lot more zest because literally, this word means to give somebody a black eye. And I love the fact of reading the story of the judge saying, if I don't give her what she wants, this woman's going to pop me in the nose. And it literally means to hit below the eyes in the face, to blacken the eye. And I, and I just, that's a whole new way of reading the story. And I think sometimes the translators maybe are a little bit nervous of reading it that way because we 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 kind of assume that we're supposed to be like the widow and we just need to try harder to get god's attention and the idea of punching god in the nose to give him a black eye to get his attention just doesn't sit right with us but it gives wonderful character to the story and livens it up a lot Her tenacity wins the day. But then Jesus, in verse 6, kind of interprets this for us. Learn a lesson from the unjust judge. Learn a lesson from the wicked judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. Now, look what he says here. We'll put it on the screen. Look what he says after that. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? It's a rhetorical question. I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man turns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Is this a story about how we're supposed to pray, or is it a story about who God is? And what's fascinating to me is how God allows himself to be understood through an example of a wicked judge. And if you go back to chapter 16, it's the crooked manager that we learn something about God about in that story too. And yet here's Jesus saying, when the Son of Man returns, it's a reference to himself, will he find anybody who's willing to trust God? who's willing to have faith, who's willing to be faithful. And I think he's asking the question, will, will there be anybody who actually gets it that God is totally not like this judge? And when we see God and we think, I've got to keep trying, I've got to keep trying, I've got to keep trying, if I just keep going, he'll eventually hear me and actually do what I want. Jesus is teaching us how to pray. But it begins with understanding who God is. And that changes the way that we pray. I had a, I had a conversation this week with um, with a young man. And um, he was talking about um, some financial matters in their life. And a risky kind of... Uh, Financial investment, where purchase something before selling something else. And having a conversation with some of the family, and he was just told, it's just money, you just got to have enough faith. And then if you've got enough faith, God will come through. And I find myself thinking, what if it doesn't work out? Then he's got two choices. Either he didn't have enough faith, or God doesn't care. And I just found myself thinking, oh, my heart aches for you. I think this story, and you may disagree with me, but I think this story is more about how we understand who God is than about the fact that we got to try harder to get God to pay attention. It's definitely a story about prayer. But so often we approach prayer as trying to get God to do what we want him to do. When prayer in Jesus' life and the way that he teaches us is so much more about being formed, we approach prayer as I got to get God to do what I want him to do. And Jesus says, no, prayer is about you being properly formed. So let me tell you a story about an unjust judge to help you understand what God is not like when it comes to bringing our requests before him. And then Jesus tells another story. So I want to read that for us. Verse 9. He told them a story to some of those who had great confidence in their own righteousness and they scorned everyone else. This is what he told them. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery, and I certainly am not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. And here's this very religious person saying, God, I have so much value to give you today. Aren't you pleased with me? because I am not like him. Right, Steve? I'm not, like, I'm not like these people. I don't cheat. I don't swear. I don't steal. I don't sleep around. I'm, I give 10% of my income. I pray. I go to church. I fast twice a week. I don't drive over the speed limit. All these things. And I, and, I, and I imagine, as you hear this, you're like, well, nobody's like that. In Jesus' day, in a religious setting, there's a little bit more of the pomp and ceremony going on. But I suspect that most of the people in the room here, you probably don't pray like that. At least, I've never heard somebody pray like that in a prayer meeting. But maybe at home, I, I doubt that you pray like that even at home. Oh, God, I thank you I'm not like that person. That that guy's an idiot. That woman, she's a loser. I'm so glad I'm not like them. God, aren't you glad that I am the way I am? Don't I just make your kingdom shine? No, we don't pray like that. But I wonder sometimes if we think like that. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody or a conversation in your head And you found yourself saying or thinking this, I can't believe she did that, said that, thought that. And when you said that or you thought that, it kind of just made you feel a little better then. Have you ever, maybe it's just me, have you ever found yourself in a place like that? So much of our self worth is determined by how we compare ourselves to other people. You can deny it or admit it, but most of your self-worth is determined by how you see yourself up against other people, which is sometimes why embracing the Jesus way is so important. Jesus told us a story in Matthew 7, and he said, listen, when you see one of your friends that's got a speck in their eye and they can't get it out, why are you trying to help them when there's a tree sticking out of your own eye? First, take the tree out of your own eye. Then you can help them with this piece of sawdust in their eye. And there's this teaching about being judgmental. And here's, a, here's a, a posture that Jesus is teaching us about Prayer. And first he's given us the example of the Pharisee and saying, well, here's one posture, and maybe we don't pray that way. But if prayer is so much more than just when we stop and get on our knees and have a conversation with God, if prayer is the way we live, then I wonder how often our prayer resembles more the Pharisee than the next person in the story. Because the next person in the story is at verse 13. We'll put that up on on the wall for you. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow and he said, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you this, a sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And here you have this tax collector modeling a posture of humility. In the first story, you know, this Jesus way of praying is to understand who God is. And that he's already determined to give us justice so we don't need to think I got to try harder you're already of an amazing value to him in this second story this idea of posture of I'm so amazing compared to God I'm nothing And then Jesus says, This is the posture that works in the kingdom. We don't like self deprecation. I like using self deprecation because it makes people laugh when you can laugh at yourself. But generally, we would say it's not a bad thing. And all over in our culture, there's the message like, You're special, you're worthy, you're valuable you know you you go you got it and and i and i understand the sentiment behind it i'm just not sure it actually works in 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 reality over and over again jesus has been showing us talking about himself and through his parables and his teaching reminding us when we can embrace our lastness, our lostness, our leastness, our loneliness. We're in the very place where we understand that even though we're like that, this is where Jesus hangs out. Jesus hangs out with dead people and losers and sinners. The biblical writers, you know, the last, the least, the lost, you know, all these things in our life that make us like that. The biblical writers just refer to that as sin. And it can be deliberate or it can be unintentional. It's still the stuff that makes you less than. And when we get to that point and we realize, oh, now when I give that up, when I die to myself, now I get to have new life in Jesus. And that's a daily thing that can happen. This is where the fun and the journey begins. In, in the Old Testament, you'll often read a phrase um, where G- God is described as being steadfast in his love or faithfully loving. It's a Hebrew word that's really hard to translate into English. You can't just do it word for word. And we were talking about that this week, uh, Wednesday night, with our high school students. And the Hebrew word is chesed. Like I said, it's hard to pronounce K H E S E D. That K H is the guttural at the back of your throat that's got to come out. And you got to get that out there. But it's translated as a God who is faithfully loving, a God who has always turned towards humanity in love. And I said to the youth, because they were having difficulty trying to kind of wrap their heads around, and I just said, I want you to think about that part of your life. That is utterly shameful. But you will do everything in your power to keep anyone from ever finding that out. Because we all have at least one of those things. And then realize God already knows about that and is still turned toward you in love. These are stories about God much more than just stories about trying to pray harder or pray more. Jesus is always correcting our image of who God is. And when we grasp that, then prayer takes on a whole new dimension. And I find myself wondering how much are we like the Pharisee when we take the time to actually reflect? How much are we like the tax collector? What will it take for us to embrace that kind of posture of humility in our awareness of God? At the end of the day, this is what I've found, that the Jesus way of praying is so freeing because it's exactly not like the wicked judge. Where somehow I've just got to keep bugging God and keep bugging him and keep bugging him and just keep hitting C7 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 until the coil spins and I get what I want. That God has already determined that we're to have justice. And and that word can also mean righteousness that God has already determined that we are of inestimable value to him, that God has already determined that he wants us to experience him in all of his fullness, to live in his life and that he will live in us and that our posture of prayer is to come to him with the recognition, I just want that new life in you, Jesus. I want to keep letting go of what was and I want to have what's new today. And then trusting, when the Son of Man comes, will he find that you trust and are faithful enough to just live in that? When we know who God is in Jesus, we leave the pretense behind. and We can actually begin communing with our creator, who is so filled with love for us that he will even allow himself to be understood through the story of a corrupt judge and a helpless widow, through the story of an arrogant religious leader and a down-and-out loser and says, find me where you least expect me and pray the Jesus way in that kind of communion and relationship." which is such a beautiful thing. Amen. <clears throat> I'd like to pray to finish us. Finish us off? No. To conclude our time together. Actually, the, the song that we just sang before this is it's just stuck in my mind, God. You're a a good good god it's who you are and i'm loved by you father in your in your mercy in your grace teach us to pray help us just grow more and more into an awareness of who you are and that that our prayer life would become so much more about being properly formed than trying to get you to behave in a way that we want you to behave. You are the master storyteller, Jesus, and may these stories stay with us all week long and continue to surprise us when we're least expecting it. That's the beauty of your parables, and I pray for that to be true this week for each and every one of us. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Amen.